Well, hello there, everybody. How are you guys doing, huh? The happy innovators? I hope you're not the unhappy innovators, because I haven't done a podcast in a while. But, uh, you know, I'm not even going to bother apologizing, because, you know, I know you've heard it all before. Same old, same old. You know, the schedule's crammed, and, you know, just got to find time to... uh, you know, focus on a podcast every once in a while. And it's difficult sometimes. I think the older I get to to do that, you know, to concentrate on several different things at one time, you know. I mean, I'm good at multitasking, but, you know, I think just as I get older, that ability diminishes just a little bit more each year. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, so what's up? Uh... The New England Patriots are not in the playoffs. They lost. They're not going to the Super Bowl this year for the first time in a long time. And uh, the irony with that is, you know, even though they're not in the playoffs, even though they're out of the running, they're not going to the Super Bowl, they're constantly being talked about on every sports network. I mean, it's just, they, even though they're not even, you know, in competition anymore, they're still the subject of many discussions because they're just the most incredible dynasty, uh, sports dynasty in NFL history. So, you know, uh, about a week ago, unfortunately, I got news that Neil Pert, the drummer from the band Rush, uh, had died. And... I gotta tell you, I'm a pretty big Rush fan. I like their music, you know. But uh, Neil Peart is one of those drummers. Man. He's just one of those drummers that we are fortunate, all of us, we are fortunate to have lived in the time that he did. And I mean that with all sincerity, man. Uh, He was a living legend. He reinvented the instrument. I mean, I can't tell you how many little things Neil Peart started to do, you know, on Rush albums that, you know, transmitted out to young and -and up-and-coming drummers, especially of my generation uh, and the generations just below me and above me. I mean, this guy reinvented the instrument and you you could play me, you know, pretty much anything by any band with any drummer. And I can point out little things that he's doing that Neil Peart started to do back in the day. And, you know, I got to say, I feel genuinely sad. I do. I uh, was shocked because the members of the band Rush had managed to keep it on the hush-hush. You know, they kept it on the down-low. They didn't talk about it a lot. They didn't talk about it at all, actually. But I guess he died of brain cancer. He had been suffering for about three years. And, uh, man, I just, I, I don't know. I don't know what to say. I just feel sad. It's sad when people die, you know? It really is. It makes me think about, um, you know, I've heard my parents talk about this, you know, that a lot of their friends have died and, um, you know, they can see themselves getting to the point in the future where a lot of their friends are gone. And, you know, even my parents have talked about, you know, eventually, you know, one of them is going to go first, right? And, um, you know, they... They're thankful every day they wake up together, you know, because they know that that time is coming to an end. And I don't know, just death is a sad thing. It really is, you know. I, uh, I've talked about it before in previous uh, podcasts. I've talked about my sister, you know, losing my sister back in 2016. And while the pain and sadness of losing my sister back in 2016 is diminished a bit it's still there 
you know, the sadness. You, th- you remember somebody, you think of their face or something that they did that was funny. And, you know, they come back to you. You know, it all comes back. And, yeah, there's still sadness there. I just think of her and I, I sigh. <laughs> you know, I just miss her. Sorry she had to die, you know. Uh, it sucks. Death sucks. It does. And getting older sucks, too, sometimes. Although I've never been one of those people that, you know, bemoans the, uh, you know, the changes and things that come with getting older. But I got to tell you, there is one aspect to this whole getting older thing that really chaps my ass. And I'll tell you what, it's the eyesight thing, you know, the vision thing. You know, nobody ever warned me about that. They never told me about that. And I think if they would have, I would have listened, you know. But uh, I'm sure if you're, you know, age 40 or older, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, You know, you reach that point with your body where, you know, your eyes change. And, you know, you need, what, bifocals and all that kind of stuff. And, oh, just, just sucks man you know it's like uh, especially for me I mean I rely so much on my vision my ability to see things and oh it's just such a hard change to deal with so if you're listening to this podcast and you're under the age of 40 here I'm going to give you a little bit of a warning okay when you turn about 40 maybe 45 like in between there your eyesight's going to change and all of a sudden like everything that you used to be able to see clearly and easily you're going to have to squint you're going to have to look closer or back up depending on whether you're far-sighted or near-sighted or whatever um it just sucks <laughs> it just sucks and you know i don't i don't want to use bifocals i just don't i prefer to like you know pull my glasses down and look with the naked eye at whatever I'm trying to, you know, make out, whatever I'm trying to see, you know, but, oh, it slows me down so much, so much, especially with technology now, because everything is made so small. I mean, the idea is that, you know, technology you know, allows us to shrink down and uh, everything is like miniaturized and the print on your you know, computer or your phone or whatever is like really small, you know, probably because they're really designed for people who are, you know, age 40 and younger. <laughs> so uh, I won't complain about it too much. And I don't really have a smartphone. So I'll learn to live with this idea of, you know, my computer and my screen and the words on my screen eventually getting smaller and smaller and smaller (laughs) and my eyesight getting worse and worse and worse but uh anyway oh so you know I have a couple of stories I wanted to share with you today a couple of things that I've been thinking about you know I did that podcast a few weeks ago about uh the teachers that I had, you know, Raz and the teachers. I forget what number episode it was. But um, that kind of got me to thinking, you know, about my high school days, you know. And I've been talking to my wife about it a little bit. And there's some pretty funny stories that I remember, you know. And, uh, and I'm going to tell you a couple of them. So here's one. <laughs> This happened when I was a, a senior in high school, my 12th year of regular education, uh, my final year of high school. And, um, <laughs> you know, I was the kind of student in school that really didn't get into a lot of trouble. Like, I, I really kind of managed to stay out of trouble, you know. Um, I was busy. And I was doing things, and I had a lot of friends and stuff like that. A lot of stuff going on uh, in school and outside of school and my family and all that kind of stuff. So I was preoccupied. And um, I've never been that much of a troublemaker, I guess. But this one time, 
you know, I was in this classroom that I had. And the name of the class was Contemporary Thought. That was the name of the class. And, you know, basically it was just a class about, you know, learning how to be a critical thinker. Um, It was a very interesting class, actually, very unusual class. Uh, This contemporary thought class taught by Mr. Allen, this guy who was really kind of animated and charismatic and really funny and uh, a really good storyteller. And he just really knew how to engage the students like he was really good at that and uh, challenge them too. you know, Um, I'm surprised I didn't bring him up in that Raz and the Teachers episode. But, you know, forgive me getting older. Um, but one day, uh, I was in contemporary thought class and Mr. Allen was out and we had a substitute teacher. Okay. Now, right in front of me, there was this guy. Okay. He was sitting right in front of me. His name was Steve. Okay. And, uh, I won't say his last name because, you know, I haven't asked permission to be talking about him. But, uh, I'm, I don't know. I'm sure he wouldn't care. But anyway, um, so we were sitting against the wall, kind of like our desks were right against the wall. Um, if you're facing the classroom, like if you're facing the teacher, okay, our desks were on the far right and the door to the classroom was on the far right. So, um, right next to Steve's desk, okay, there was a door. And the doorknob had been taken off the door, apparently because they didn't want anybody opening that door. And, um, you know, for the majority of the school year, you know, we sat there and we would talk from time to time. And, you know, sometimes we would partner up to do a project or whatever, you know, and we would kind of like talk about that door. You know, where's that door go? Where's that thing go? This natural sense of curiosity, right? Like, what's behind that door? And um, so this one particular day when Mr. Allen was not there, this guy, Steve, and myself decided that we were going to try to go through that door as soon as the classroom, like, emptied out, okay? And uh, because their class was right before lunchtime, you know, there would be an opportunity for us to, you know, slip out of the classroom without anybody knowing that we had been in there, right? So Steve takes this pencil, all right, and he sticks it like in this little notch where the doorknob goes, and he turns it, and the door pops open. And he turns around and looks at me, and we both like smile like, oh, totally, like we are totally going in there, you know? So we had this substitute teacher, this lady. She was kind of, I guess, like a little timid, maybe like a new teacher, right? And she was a sub. So, you know, the kids were riding her like Zorro, like all the time, you know? Um, We didn't learn a damn thing while she was in the classroom because everybody was just screwing around. But the bell rings, the class ends, everybody files out the door, and Steve and I, really quick, slip behind this door. Right. So once we step inside this doorway, right, we take a left and you look and there's this stairwell that goes like almost straight up. It was pretty steep and it went up maybe, I don't know, 20 or 30 feet. Okay. well, it turns out, you know, as we got on the stairwell and we went up into this room at the top of the school, Uh, it was a part of the school that was known as the tower. Okay, and uh, nobody ever went up there. I mean, I don't know anybody, brothers and sisters, friends, nobody ever made it up into the tower. But there I was with this guy, Steve, and we're like just checking it out. It was like a big empty room with these gigantic windows, a lot of sunlight pouring through. And we kind of like walked around a little bit, checked it out, whatever. No big deal. Uh, mystery solved, you know, no more curiosity. And uh, so we make our way down the stairwell. And as we come out the door, you know, that door we came through, 
<laughs> the substitute teacher, okay, had decided to eat her lunch at the desk in the room. And when we came through that door, we scared her so bad, okay? Like, she was so startled that I'm surprised she didn't have a heart attack, okay? She looked like she was about to, okay? I mean, she went white as a ghost. I think her hair stood straight up. I mean, she was, like, totally, totally scared, totally shocked that somebody just came out of the wall, you know? And, uh... So we apologized and she was like, oh, what are you doing in there? Get out of here. Blah, 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 blah. And, you know, this guy, Steve and I took off and we're like, oh, damn, we are like totally busted, you know, and we were. <laughs> I didn't get in too much trouble. I can I think I got a couple detentions or something, which is like, you know, I had to stay after school or something and sit in a room and do my homework for a half an hour and then I got to go home. But it was really the only time I ever really got into trouble at school. I mean, it was, <laughs> I got in a lot of trouble. I did, I did. Um, my parents were ready to kill me, you know, and, uh, the, and the principal of the school, you know, sent a letter home to my parents and all the teachers had to account for, uh, you know, where I was and all that kind of stuff. It was just like, it was a mess, but no harm intended. You know, we were just kind of curious and we wanted to know what was behind that door, you know? And, uh, you know, I suppose that's worth talking about a little bit, that notion of wondering, you know, what's behind the door, you know, kind of is something that's kind of carried over. I guess throughout my whole life, you know, always wanting to kind of see, check out the unknown, you know, trying to figure something out or hear about something that was unknown or see it, or find it, you know. Um, it's a pretty interesting thing to think about, you know, having that as part of your personality because not everybody's like that, right? Not everybody really cares about what's behind that door. Most people just ignore it. You know, like most of the students in my classroom. But, uh, you know, I was different. I was different. I wanted to know. I wanted to see. You know, I wanted to find out. Um, you know, and right around that time, I was remembering this too, talking to my wife about it, you know. Um, I was in a band, okay, called Rotary 10, and you know, we, we did a lot of shows and stuff. I've talked about this band before. Okay. But, um, man, I don't even really remember the circumstances around this. Really. I know that I had quit Rotary 10 at some point in my high school days. And I guess maybe from my memory that doesn't serve me as well as I want it to, um, for some reason, the guys from that band, you know, they had kicked me out. Okay, because the keyboard player wanted to date my girlfriend. <laughs> he had the hots for my girlfriend. And so therefore, I was no longer welcome in his band. <laughs> what a loser. <laughs> but, uh, man, they asked me if I would sit in on a gig with them, like do a gig with them that they had been asked to do. They needed a drummer. And they wanted it to be like a separate band. It wasn't Rotary 10 for whatever reason. They wanted to call this band the Super Winners, okay? <laughs> Don't ask me why, okay? I was just asked to drum for them, and uh, I decided that I would. But these guys that I used to jam with, you know, they weren't exactly like the nicest people, okay? Um, obviously, right? They kicked me out because he wanted to date my girlfriend, and he couldn't. So he kicked me out, you know? Um, so we do all these rehearsals, right? I mean, for the super winners, for this show uh, that the, the city we grew up in, you know, they had this uh, shindig every year 
I think they called it the fun days. And it was like a community thing where everybody would come to this really big park uh, in the area that I grew up in, an area called Bolkin Park. Um, it was a nice size. I mean, it's big. And football fields, baseball fields, all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, picnic area, plenty of parking, some toys and rides for the kids and all that kind of stuff. And they had this big pavilion where, you know, they would have live performers play. And uh, so these guys I jammed with had been asked by the mayor, you know, to play in the pavilion at Bulkin Park. And, of course, they agreed under the name Super Winners. And uh, they asked me if I would drum. So we do all these rehearsals. We uh, get together for maybe like two or three weeks before the show. And uh, like I said, you know, just rehearsing different cover songs, different songs we were going to play. And uh, it was a lot of work, you know, when you're doing that kind of thing. and You're taking it seriously. At least I was. Um, you know, you pay attention, you show up on time, and all that it cuts into your schedule. You know, you're, you're making time for it. So, you know, show day rolls around, right? Now check this out. This actually happened, okay? We get to the venue. We set up all of our equipment, right? And do a line check and all that stuff, right? And all these people are there. You know, gathered around to watch, including my parents, okay? And right before showtime, okay, I noticed that these two brothers that were in the band, they were twins, okay? They started packing their gear up and putting it in their car. And I'm standing there like, what the hell are you guys doing? You know? Well, it turns out these two jackasses decided, okay, that uh, they didn't want to play the gig. Yeah. They decided they weren't going to play that day. And I was so angry. <laughs> I wasn't disappointed, you know. I wasn't hurt. I wasn't uh, anything like that. I was ready to kill these guys, okay? Like, beat them up. And um, honestly, my father was too. <laughs> he was there too. And I never heard my father really cuss that much. But on this day, let me tell you something. He dropped a few bombs, man. My father was furious. He's like, what the hell are you talking? They're leaving? You've got to be kidding. I'm like, man, these effing essen. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I want to kill you guys, you know? <laughs> and that was probably the last time I ever spoke to those two jokers because they're jokers, okay? They're clowns. And, um, and they're assholes, too. <laughs> they are. They're like two assholes. Um, I guess I am one too, but I would never, ever uh, cut out on a performance, ever. I mean, the show must go on. And these people were so disappointed, like this crowd were so disappointed. And, you know, I suppose I could have done like a drum solo or something, <laughs> you know, but I just had to start breaking my gear down and getting ready to leave, you know, and it was one of those things um, that stayed with me my entire life, you know, like what not to do, you know. Um, but it also kind of reminds me of this thing, okay, that I've been thinking about lately, you know. Um, and this is going to probably sound a little bit uppity or a little bit snotty or something, but... It's a realization that I've come to over the past uh, 40 years, okay, of doing this stuff, this music thing. Um, a lot of the time when I collaborate with somebody or with people or a group or something, um, a lot of the times it doesn't go very smooth. You know, it doesn't go very well. 
um, like every time I come to my wife with a new idea, oh, this person wants to collaborate, you know, they want to do something with me. She kind of rolls her eyes, you know, she's kind of like, oh, I know where this is going. You know, there's, <laughs> it never ends good. You know, it'll always end in tears. And, uh, I gotta say that most of the time she's right. And with the exception of maybe one or two occasions in my lifetime, you know, um, you know, things usually go south, you know, um, and I had to think about that a lot, you know, cause I have to, you know, do that. I'm a critical thinker, you know, thanks to Mr. Allen and his contemporary thought class, you know, I'm a critical thinker and, uh, you know, why is that Mike? You know, why is it that whenever you collaborate with somebody on anything, it usually goes bad? You know, is it because you're difficult to deal with? No, I don't think so. I'm particular, right? I'm particular, but uh, I want the end result. Like, I want the net result to be good. Uh, maybe not perfect, but at least interesting, right? That's what I shoot for. And, uh, you know, I like to have fun in the studio and I like to I like to collaborate. I do. I like that idea. It's fun to do, but a lot of the time, okay, after some analysis and kind of thinking about things, I kind of came to the conclusion that, you know, a lot of the time uh when I've collaborated with people and it hasn't gone well, it's because they're mediocre musicians. And I know that sounds really really you know, pretentious okay whatever you want to call it but it's true you know like I need to pay attention to that more like it's not okay for me Mike Bostwick to just collaborate with anybody it can't just be anybody I have to pay attention to some standards you know and uh, watch for you know telltale signs that Things are maybe not as good as they should be or, you know, whatever. The times that I have had successful collaborations with people is when I'm collaborating with people that are much better than I am. And I never have ever had the problem admitting that to myself. I know when someone is better than me. I know. And I don't care. I'm actually excited about it. And I hope to learn from them or at least to pay attention and take notes, right? But isn't that a strange thing to say? I mean, it does sound really snotty, I guess, coming out of my mouth. It's pro- I'm probably not saying it right, but uh, at least for now, I'll call it that. I'll call it mediocre, you know, mediocrity. You know, I get these musicians that really aren't really that good. You know, they're not... They're not at the same level that I'm at which is a very low level but like they're not there yet and of course those kinds of situations will collapse in on themselves they won't be able to sustain and you know uh, be, be seen through you know to their fruition it won't happen and it never has it never has and I guess uh, you know over the past few years I've just kind of come to realize that that uh You know, I need to kind of be a little more selective about who I decide to collaborate with and why and when and all that kind of stuff. Not because I'm some amazing musician or something, because I'm not. I definitely know that I'm not, and I don't have any problem admitting that. But, you know, when you have somebody who's not professional, kind of like the super winners, those two jackasses, you know that are so into themselves and so out of control stupid that they would bail on a show five minutes before showtime? You know, five minutes before the curtain? Are you kidding? What a... What a... What a couple of jokers. A couple of fools, you know? I was wasting my time. I wasted my time with them. And you know what? That happens a lot with me. I waste my time you know, with these expectations from somebody who, you know, talks a big game. But when it comes to actual collaboration and getting the work done and, you know, doing it, they fail, man. 
They fail. They're not serious enough. You know, they don't take it seriously. It's a game. It's a joke. You know, yeah, there's a lot of that crap with with musicians that I've worked with in the past where it's really more about, uh, you know, some vanity exercise or something, you know, like uh, they're not really in it for the music, man. They're, they're in it because it gets some girls or they're, they're in it because it gets them attention or something, but they don't really, really care about the work, you know. Um, you know, when I was younger, that was one of the things about that band, U2. That was one of the things I liked about them the most was that uh, not so much the music. I loved the music, don't get me wrong, but um, it was the interpersonal relationships that they had with each other as a band. I think it's why they're still together and why they've managed to have as long of a career and as successful of a career that they've had um, is because they get along with each other and they talk and they really care about what they're doing. You know, like their head is in the game at all times. Like uh, they're not half in, they're all in, you know. Um, It's kind of like this. You know, I was just watching a playoff game for the NFL. The San Francisco 49ers versus the Green Bay Packers. Both great teams, right? But I'll tell you what I noticed while I was watching this game. I even said it to my wife, pointed it out to her, okay? There are these two guys on the 49ers from San Francisco. um, And they were winning the game. And they went on to absolutely destroy the Green Bay Packers. It was a joke. I mean, they killed them. But I noticed that when the camera would pan on the sideline where the team was sitting, waiting to come out onto the field, you know, waiting for their number to get called, a lot of the guys from the 49ers were talking to each other about the game. They were going over different strategies with each other, and I could see them working it out, you know, they don't, they don't know anybody's watching them, but I was there watching them on camera. The camera's sweeping past them, and I could see them talking and, you know, working out, hey, this guy's coming at me this way. Why don't we try to come at him this way? You know, maybe we should try it this. Put your arm up this way, and, and they're working it out, right? Their head is in the game, okay? They're not looking at their watch and their jewelry, and they're not laughing and goofing around and you know, having a good time on the sidelines. They're working. They're in it. They're in a game. And until the game is over, they're in the game 100%, right? And you kind of need that. (laughs) That kind of spirit when you're collaborating with people, right? I mean, it's so important to have your head in the game, you know? And show up on time. And you know, if you say Tuesday be there on Tuesday, you know, if showtime is at eight o'clock, be there at six, you know, let's get a sound check, a line check. Let's do this, do it right. You know, and, uh, no matter what, you know, don't bail, uh, you know, five minutes before showtime, you know, kidding me? Bunch of jokers, man. Just a bunch of jokers. So much of that crap. So much of it drives me crazy. I know it sounds uppity and snotty, but I don't care. I don't care. I take what I do seriously. And uh, from now on, uh, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to be collaborating with anybody for a long time. And if I do, it'll have to be somebody who's much better than I am, you know, and uh, is as serious about it as I am. And uh, I can hear... The happy innovators. You know, I'm serious too. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. But from my experience, it's like, man, a lot of people talk a big game. But when it comes down to it, they're small potatoes. You know, they don't really have the goods. And, uh, you know, maybe you've experienced that too yourself. I guess that's kind of why I'm talking about it, right? I mean, we're all probably in our own ways creative people, you know, Whenever there's a creative situation, you know, you uh, eventually find people who want to get together, collaborate. Sometimes you have synergy, sometimes you don't. 
Um, sometimes it pans out, sometimes it doesn't. But, you know, I would hope that um, if your collaborations collapse in on themselves, I hope it's not because you didn't show up, you know, or you didn't do the thing, or you didn't deliver what you said you would, or you didn't deliver the goods, you know. If you say you're going to be there, be there. You know, if you say you're going to do it, do it. You know, that's that's just how I feel. You know, snotty or not, pretentious or not, that's how I feel. And uh, mediocrity, man. Something to be avoided. Yeah. I'll tell you another funny story. This is a funny one. (laughs) Okay. You know... When I was younger, being a drummer and everything, I was I was a commodity, okay? Uh, drummers were hard to come by. Good drummers were hard to come by. And I was pretty good. So a lot of the time I would get asked to drum in different situations, right? Like somebody's drummer couldn't make it, so they'd ask me if I could sit in or uh, the drummer quit. Mike, would you want to come try out for our band? You know, check us out, see what we sound like. Sure, I'll come down. You know, it was all fun to me. You know, so this one time, <laughs> there was this one guy who uh, had a band, and it was like, you know, in high school, there were like different tribes of kids, you know, and uh, I don't know, I guess different echelons of players and musicians and stuff. And, you know, I was kind of, fortunately for me, near the top, I think, a little bit, and I got to play with the big kids, you know, and the heavy hitters. And, uh, you know, this one guy I knew, I was friends with him, not really good friends. We didn't talk all the time, but we didn't fight. We didn't dislike each other. So when I saw him, hey, what's up, man? How you doing? That kind of thing. Well, he asked me if I would be willing to come down and, you know, jam with his band for a night. I think they had a gig coming or something and they needed me to sit in. I forget what it was. I don't remember now. Maybe they needed a drummer. I think they needed a drummer. I think they were looking for a drummer so i came down to their place they had a drum set set up there that i could play on and uh they were like one of those bands that did like you know pink floyd uh black sabbath uh deep purple uh you know smoke on the water wild thing uh maybe some acdc songs or something you know that kind of stuff that older kind of music right <laughs> older you know zeppelin you know um but uh so i show up at this place and uh right away i was kind of like man okay this basement we're in this basement and oh my gosh it just was the filthiest dirtiest smelliest you know totally cluttered filled with junk basement and in this corner are, are all these musical instruments, okay? Amplifiers, drum set, whatever. So we make our way down there. But right in front of the drum set, okay, there was a massive pile of dog shit, okay? Like a big, huge log sitting right on the floor in front of the drum set. And it absolutely stunk the whole basement up. I mean, it reeked like dog feces okay and uh so we start jamming and i'm like gagging my eyes are watering like dude this stinks so bad that i can't even concentrate like it's so i could taste it you know it's in the air like open a window man you know like get rid of the dog turds you know do something right so we finished like maybe one or two songs and i'm like dude uh I can't, I can't take it in here anymore. It absolutely stinks like dog in here. It's so bad. And (laughs) this guy that invited me down, (laughs) and this might've been the reason why I didn't join the band. Okay. His solution to the problem. Okay. (laughs) This happened. This happened. He goes upstairs in his kitchen. He comes down with like a bowl, like a cereal bowl. (laughs) <laughs> and he just puts it over the dog turds <laughs> problem solved all done 
Let's play. Ready? One, two, three, four. <laughs> I think I did a couple of songs and then, like, you know, went home. <laughs> hey, Mike, do you want to come back and practice again? Uh, no. <laughs> no, thank you. No, thank you. I think I'll play with another band. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. Oh, it was a busy time for me back then. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so, I've been talking for a little while now. I guess I'll bail here. Um, yeah. Anyway, so, the moral of the story today is, you know, try to avoid mediocrity, you know? If you're a serious person, you're serious about what you're doing... Avoid mediocrity. Avoid people who are not as serious as you, you know, or knowledgeable, you know. Um, so, anyway, my happy innovators, I'm going to take off now, get back to work. But until next time, this is Mike Bostwick from Pipe Choir Records signing off. And remember, folks, if you want to keep what you've got, you've got to give it away. Take it easy. Well, hello there, happy innovators, the lucky ones who decided to stick it out and wait to the end of the podcast to see if there would be a little surprise for you. Well, I've got one for you today. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to share with you a song called Klitschy, K-L-I-C-H-I. It's an instrumental track I did a while ago. A uh, very simple idea. It was born from an experimental idea that I had where, uh, believe it or not, uh, I have a song called Reach Out, Return to Me. It's a very popular song for me. It's done very well. And uh, one day I was listening to that song uh, in my system, you know, the session where all the tracks are available. And I was just kind of listening to it and I was turning tracks on and off and just kind of listening to it as it played and isolating uh, this track over here. What what does that sound like? What am I playing? Oh, I remember that. Okay, And, you know, kind of just fiddling around. And, uh, you know, I get to the end of the song and I uh, have this function on my system that allows me to play everything backwards. You know, to start at the end and go backwards to the beginning, and it'll play it in real time, like um, normal tempo, normal pitch, and everything. Um, so, what I did was on this song, Reach Out, Return to Me, I struck all the drums out, all the vocals out, all the guitars out. The only thing that was left were the keyboard tracks that I played. Okay? But. I found that they sounded really, really cool when I played them backwards. Like all the keyboards in that song being played backwards simultaneously. It gave it this really strange kind of vapory, mysterious kind of sound, uh, almost like a cloud. And uh, I decided that what I was going to do was release that you know, that reversed version of Reach Out, Return to Me, the isolated keyboard tracks, I would, you know, flip them and then master it down and release it as a separate piece of music. It's kind of like an experiment. Like, can I recycle uh, music from one of my own songs? I thought it was pretty cool. So uh, when you listen to Klitschy by PC3, you're hearing the keyboards only from the PC3 song, Reach Out, Return to Me. So check it out. And uh, until next time, folks, stay out of trouble, have some fun, and uh, take it easy. <laughs>